1: Ah, welcome to Hertel. It's Friday, folks. You made it August the 19th, year of our Lord 2022. We're playing Friday night high school football tonight. I can't wait. I'm excited. It's that time of the year. Wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. Thank you for joining us on Hertel. I'm Andrew Donaldson. A lot to get through today, and we're excited about it. Uh, we've got a sneak peek of the Tell podcast for the weekend, Machiavelli, the man, the myth, the legend, 500 years of this guy. Why does he endure? Why is he in pop culture? Why did he influence everybody from people in his own day to even the founding fathers of America to pop culture? Amanda Griffiths joins us. For that deep dive, we got a sneak peek of that, talking about the founding fathers of America's influence with Machiavelli, the real guy and the myth, both. It's great stuff. Hope you'll join us for that a little bit later on the program. We'll tease that. Also, a great story to end the program. Uh, Everybody had that neighborhood house that kids could go to and get a treat out in Ohio. uh, That lady giving treats to those kids probably saved her life when one of them came by looking for ice cream, ended up calling 911. We'll cover that story to end the program we always like to end on an uplifting note our friend benjamin ianian back uh our guest today we're gonna have some grown folk talk about guns both the gun control side of the argument and the second amendment gun rights Side of the argument, why the two extremes of those two groups get all the attention and the great swaths and spectrum in the middle don't get to seem to have much of a discussion because they've got to deal with both of those. We're also going to talk about some of the recent policy stuff. We're going to talk about mass shootings. We're going to talk a little bit of theory. We're going to talk a little bit about politics. We're going to talk some practical stuff too, how the social media age is driving the discourse. On this very important topic that is a constitutional right and is also a pending issue in the headlines. Uh, Benjamin Ianian, back on the show today. Always enjoy talking to our friend. But first, um, let's go over to Saudi Arabia. I know I love Twitter, I spend way too much time on Twitter. I will admit it, but, and I've written about this before, when I first kind of started with this new normal thing, and before I really started writing and everything else, I got my Twitter account. That's how my world got opened back up. When I got sick and was home and was rehabbing, that opened my world back up. It led to me writing, led me doing media, led me doing this show. I love Twitter. Twitter's got a lot to answer for in this particular case. In fact, there's a case now where they have convicted um, a Twitter Somebody associated with Twitter uh, with undue influence with Saudi Arabia, but we'll get to that another time. Let's go to The Guardian. A Saudi student at Leeds University who had returned home to the kingdom, Saudi Arabia, for a holiday has been sentenced to 34 years in prison for having a Twitter account and for following and retweeting dissidents and activists. The sentencing by Saudi Special Terrorist Court, Terrorist Court for tweeting, was handed down weeks. Uh, after the U.S. President Joe Biden visited Saudi Arabia, which was highly controversial, which human rights activists have warned could embolden the kingdom to escalate its crackdown on dissidents and other pro-democracy activists. The case also marks the latest example of how Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salam uh, has targeted Twitter users in his campaign of repression while simultaneously controlling a major indirect stake in the U.S. social media company through Saudi's Sovereign Wealth Fund, the Public Investment Fund, PIF. Salam al-Shahab, 34, a mother of two young children, was initially sentenced to serve three years in prison for the quote-unquote crime of using an internet website to quote, cause public unrest and destabilize civil and national security, end quote. That's from the Saudis. But an appeals court on Monday handed down the new sentence. One person who knew Shihab said she could not stomach injustice. She was described as well-educated and an avid reader who arrived in the UK in 2018 and 2019 to pursue her PhD at Leeds. She had returned home to Saudi Arabia in December 2020 on a holiday and had intended to bring her two children and husband back to the U.K. with her. She was then called in for questioning by the Saudi authorities and was arrested and tried for her tweets. A person who followed her case said Shabab had at times been held in solitary confinement and had sought during her trial to privately tell the judge something about how she had been handled, which she did not want to state in front of her father. In that culture, you can pretty much guess where that's going. She was not permitted to communicate the message to the judge. The person said the appeals verdict was signed by three judges, but the signatures were illegible. Twitter declined to comment on the case and did not respond to specific questions about what, if any, influence Saudi Arabia has over the company. Twitter previously did not respond to questions by The Guardian about why a senior aide to Prince Mohammed, Badir al askar had been allowed to keep a verified Twitter account with more than 2 million followers despite U.S. government allegations that he orchestrated an illegal infiltration of the company which led anonymous Twitter users to being identified and jailed by the Saudi government. One former Twitter employee has been convicted of a U.S. court. Up there, please read the rest of this. We'll link to it in the show notes. Folks, free speech is really important. We blow it off in buzzword in America, but it means something. If you have the freedom of speech to complain about your leaders and other world leaders, please use it for more than just sending cat pictures and complaining about Congress, although we do both of those here. This stuff matters. The Internet is one of the greatest tools for freedom that mankind has ever created, and it has repercussions. And when bad actors like the ruling dictators and the ruling House of Saud over Saudi Arabia use it to crush dissent, and to infiltrate social media and infiltrate uh, anonymous accounts, although this was not her anonymous accounts, it means something. People go to prison just for expressing themselves on social media. Do not ever take it for granted. If you are in a country where you can listen to this program or any other program you choose to and tweet things and social media things on Facebook, Instagram, or whatever, are you being a beacon for freedom? are you just griping about stuff that affects only you? Because people like her are paying a heavy price for their speech. So maybe we should pay a little bit more attention to what we use our speech to do. We should condemn Saudi Arabia for doing this kind of nonsense. Any other country that does this sort of thing, it's wrong, it's evil, it's wicked. But we should use our free speech to continue to speak for those who do not have free speech. Be a little less selfish, a little more aware that whether you like it or not, if you're on the internet, you're a world citizen. Be one for freedom and justice for all. More hotel Tell right after this.
2: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card.
1: Hi, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, he's back. He's been here before. He's written all over the place. Star Tribune, Wall Street Journal, one of those I still haven't got for some reason. Uh, Yahoo News, recent graduate of Minnesota, but we're not going to hold that against him. Golden Gophers are welcome here for this day and this day only. We'll see how the football season goes before we go further. Nat, he's working on those LSATs, trying to get more knowledge jammed in there. He's a good guy. We're glad to have him back. I'm going to talk a little guns today. Benjamin Ianian, welcome back, my friend.
0: Andrew, thanks for having me back. I'm glad to be here.
1: Well, we'll have to quit talking to you once you become a lawyer because now then you're one of the, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We, <laughs> have, we have lawyers on all the time. We just treat them a little differently. <laughs> um, congratulations on getting school done. Good to have you back. You've got a piece out. You were writing in Spectator. Let's start big picture. You know what? Let's do it this way. Let's actually go big picture and then zoom in on this because I think the perspective is really, really important here. I think one of the biggest problems with gun control and gun rights both both sides of this argument is When We we only talk about it when there's an event, usually a tragic event or a legislative event. We had them back-to-back in this case. That's the only time people want to talk about these, and we never string them together, and we never look at it as a big-picture thing, and we never look at it linearly instead of just as a sequence of things. I think that's a big problem because I think a lot of the issues with this is we want to just deal with them in the individual things with whatever our priors were, and we lose perspective on this. Do you think that's a fair way to kind of frame this all up?
0: I think that's a completely fair way to frame the discussion. I think that it is a problem that we seem to talk about this issue so often whenever in a, a, a terrible tragedy occurs. And then if there's a lull where there isn't a big event in the news cycle, then the discussion kind of, goes to the back burner and people don't talk about it as much. And so we we're always discussing this issue when passions and tensions are the highest. Um you know people's opinions can change um from times of you know passion and fervor to when they're you know more calm and, and thinking about certain issues more collectively. And so I do think that it's important that you know we talk about the issues of gun violence constantly because um, it, it is an issue in the united states that is worth our attention and our discussion Um, but i agree with you a, a large problem is that we only talk about it when there is a major event in the news cycle
1: and the other side of that of course is is that even though we have let's just say mass shootings every single one of them have unique aspects they have unique uh precursors they have unique individuals involved in them. Thank God. Usually it's as far as I know of mass shootings, it's usually a one and done for the perpetrators for a variety of reasons. That's another part of this perspective thing is that we're trying to solve a problem that is a little bit different every single time, right?
0: Yeah. Every mass shooting is different. You can't draw, you know, consistencies with each event. And at the end of the day, as much it is a huge problem. I don't want to downplay, you know, mass shootings, active shooters, all this is a huge problem in the United States. Um, but the events are so, you know, rare in the sense of, you know, compared to you know, gun violence more generally or you know, people wanting to go drive their cars, like people get in their cars way more often than we see an active shooter. And what I'm trying to illustrate with that is that we don't have a ton of data points um, because mass shootings and active shooters are so rare it's hard to draw causal conclusions about what leads to these events occurring or you know what can we do to stop it um because at the end of the day when you don't have a large set of data points you're not going to be able to draw you know easy conclusions about what is causing these events to happen
1: yeah benjamin ianian joining us okay let me give you the argument back to that Uh, folks that are for more gun control are going to say, well, of course, silly, the common denominator is the gun. So if we just get rid of the gun, then all the rest of that equation falls apart. What's the answer to that? Because that's what we hear a lot. That's what folks say. Well, the gun is the common denominator. So let's do something about the gun. What's your answer for
0: that? Well, I have a, a few answers to that argument. For one, you know, people who argue stricter gun laws, you know, will, eradicate this issue i would just point to you know um the gun violence archive data actually and if you go to worldpopulationreview.com they have listed um every state and how many mass shootings they had between 2013 and 2019 and if we look at it at a per capita basis so if we control for population size in these states, you know, states like New York, Illinois, and California, who have the strictest gun laws in the nation, they have had on a per capita basis, more mass shootings than states like Texas, New Hampshire, and Wyoming, who nu- notoriously have really relaxed gun laws. And so then if the idea is, well, let's find a way to you know, ban guns completely. For one, I would argue against that for our own personal safety and and liberties, because we've seen throughout history, whether it was Nazi Germany, we saw in the um, Ottoman Empire, um, the Turks um, carrying out a genocide against Armenians. Um, and then we've seen um, racist lawmakers in the history of the United States trying to prevent Black Americans from obtaining firearms, you know, obtain... Um, Banning guns would put us all at risk to government tyranny and oppression. Um, but then, I also don't even think it is possible to ban guns. People love to point to Australia. Australia had a you know a buyback program um, for their guns, but estimations are that only twenty uh, percent of people actually complied with that buyback, and authorities have admitted that there is a large. Black market for guns in Australia, where even organized crime organizations are able to get fully automatic weapons. And so the idea is if there is a supply of a good and there's enough demand, no matter how much how many laws we try to use to restrict the circulation of that good, we're just going to drive it circulation underground. We see that with drugs in the United States. You know, We've had a war on drugs. There's plenty of drugs circulating on the black market. We saw that with alcohol during the prohibition era where per capita consumption of hard liquor actually rose during prohibition. And so I think that we're living in somewhat of a fantasy world. If we believe we can just get rid of guns or stricter gun laws would eradicate this issue because we have plenty of reason to doubt that would be the case.
1: Yeah. Benjamin Iranian joining us now here. Here's the crux of the piece you wrote in the spectator though, is that the good guy with the gun, part of its narrative, there's some truth to it. And to be fair, this is a very small percentage. This doesn't happen that much. However, Here's where I think we need to go back to the wider perspective before we delve into the specific examples you give. People are starting to see, we are seeing minority groups go start buying guns more and more. We're seeing women is an exploding segment of gun owners in America. People that are vulnerable and or feel themselves to be vulnerable are wanting to arm themselves. That did not happen in a vacuum. That happened in a sequence. And when they see the issues with law enforcement and they see the issues with law enforcement response to things like shootings and they see things with societal responses, they don't feel safe and they want to exercise their right to self-defense. I think that's an important context before you go, because I think there's a habit of going, well, these are cowboys or these are renegades or these are people just running around shooting guns. I think this is a small percentage, but I think we're going to see more of it because the numbers don't lie. Gun ownership's going up,
0: right? Absolutely, gun ownership's going up, and in states where you know we see the relaxing of licensing requirements for carry permits, we see applications going through the roof. Last time I checked in Maryland, their um, concealed carry permit applications were rising at a rate of you know seven hundred percent at a seven hundred percent increase and permit applications at the time I wrote the Spectator article, and so yeah, people are seeing what's going on with law enforcement. We saw in Uvalde an inexcusable law enforcement response to a school shooting in Parkland, Florida, in 2018. We saw a officer hide um, when there was a school shooter, and so people are arming themselves because they believe in their right to self defense. They see that we are seeing active shooters um, across the country. It seems that almost weekly or biweekly, there's a new new story of active shooters. And we see law enforcement not always acting in the ways that they ought to. And so people are now taking seriously their right to self-defense, and as a result, they're arming themselves.
1: Benjamin Ianian joining us on Hertel. Tell. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a couple of the specific instances with good guys with guns or good Samaritans with guns. What can we apply? Also, what we can apply, because that's not going to be scalable in every situation. Tough topic again, gun control, Second Amendment rights, the eternal struggle between the two. Benjamin Ianian's helping us sort it out on Hertel, Tell, and we'll continue with him right after this. this. Hi, welcome back to Hurt Tell. Benjamin Ienian's back on the program. We're talking a little bit. Gun control versus Second Amendment and the Good Samaritan narrative. It's fair to call it a narrative, isn't it? Because it it seems to be more narrative than it actually happens. You actually did the research on this. When it does happen, what's some of the takeaways that you found? What's some of the common threads? It is, again, it is rare. It's not scalable to every single situation. But when it does happen, what's some of the common threads you're seeing when you wrote about it?
0: yeah so first let me give an idea and a contextualization of how rare this actually is and you know earlier in our discussion i said that you know active shooter events are incredibly rare which makes it hard to draw conclusions from them and so from 2000 to 2021 um according to texas state university data there were 464 active shooter events in the united states which is defined as when there's an individual Or multiple individuals attempting to kill or are killing multiple unrelated people in a public place. This is what we tend to think of when we're talking about you know tragic mass shooting events. And so there were 464 from 2000 to 2021, and in 24 of them, the shooter was stopped by um, a legally armed bystander before the police actually arrived. And so the one that I focused on in my op-ed for the American Spectator was in greenwood indiana we saw an individual bring a handful of firearms and about 100 rounds of ammunition into a mall and opened fire in a food court and a legally armed bystander a 22 year old had his pistol on him and was able to neutralize the shooter within i believe it was 15 seconds and then in west virginia in 2000 and or just a couple months ago in 2022 in may um an individual stopped an active shooter that opened fire on a graduation uh, or birthday celebration type party, they were able to stop the active shooter before the shooter could injure a single person. And so it is a narrative that you know good guys with guns stop bad guys with guns, because it's not like this happens anywhere near most of the time there is an active shooter. Um, but one thing that's important for context in that is that, in many states, it was incredibly hard to get a concealed carry permit, Um, really up until recently when the Supreme Court struck down a New York firearms regulation. Um, It was incredibly hard in plenty of states. And as we see laws changing, we see more individuals being able to carry arms, and hopefully they'll be able to play a role in stopping these active shooters because an individual who wants to go do harm to a random group of individuals, they don't care about the law. They don't care if they can legally own a gun. They don't care if they can legally carry that gun. If they're determined to cause harm, they bring those firearms wherever they're going. And so what you see is that law abiding individuals can make us safer because if they are armed and they know what they're doing and they're educated on on how to carry a firearm responsibly, they can stop an active shooter before police arrive on scene. And now there are risks involved because if you have two people shooting and the police show up, they might not know which one is the active shooter. And we've seen that go wrong um, in the past. At the end of the day, there are risks involved whenever there is a dangerous active shooter event. And and it was my opinion in my piece that we are safer at the end of the day when law-abiding citizens are carrying concealed firearms because they can act quickly instead of having to wait for police officers to arrive on scene if they aren't already.
1: Yeah. Now here we go. We're going to go to the devil's advocate argument again. And it is a fair argument to make is like you have armed citizenry, unlike the police who have standards to carry their firearm. They have to be qualified. They have to train on it. Um, setting aside the part of a police response not being what it should be sometimes they we know what they are at least on paper capable and expected to do you do not have that with the citizenry especially when 50 states can have theoretically 50 different gun uh, laws some of them may have certain requirements for concealed carry some of them may not some of them may have open carry with no uh no standards whatsoever it's going to vary that part of this is not going to change. We have a Supreme Court that is very favorable to gun rights right now, so I would suspect those court cases are going to trend that way, at least for the foreseeable future. The argument is you don't know whether that good guy with the gun actually knows what he's doing or not. Again, the sample size you have, we have some success. There's also a potential for tragedy here, yes?
0: There's absolutely a potential for tragedy. I think that That is a completely fair counter argument that, you know, we don't necessarily know whether or not the good guy with a gun knows what they're doing to any similar degree that a police officer does. I think that that is a fair, you know, pushback. But what I would argue is that for the most part, you know, people who go, they purchase a firearm or there are firearms, you know, in their family and they've been taught how to shoot. I think that the the one issue is these people are viewed as, you know, gunslingers that have no idea what they're doing. A lot of individuals who own firearms are very dedicated to understanding firearms. They have an interest in firearms. They enjoy going to the gun range. And so I don't think it's a fair characterization of individuals who tend to carry firearms um, or individuals who go through the concealed carry permit process um i don't think it's fair to characterize them as gunslingers which i feel a lot of individuals in the media do these days um but on top of that there are states 25 of them to be exact that have constitutional carry which says that if you do not Uh, or if you are legally able to own a firearm, a handgun, then you can legally carry it in public without um, going through any permit process. And there are obviously dangers associated with that. I mean, imagine if I'm 18 years old, uh, well, 21 for a handgun, imagine I'm 21 years old, I purchase a pistol, I don't know the first thing about it, and all of a sudden I'm carrying it. There are obviously going to be dangers associated with that. Um, There are other states who have incredibly strict um, licensing processes, they now just have to be objective, where they require live fire training, they require classroom training, and they require individuals to complete a test um, administered usually by a DOJ certified instructor um, to be able to carry a concealed firearm. I think that at the end of the day, those types of objective criteria, if we require those for individuals Um, to be able to carry a concealed weapon. I think that that would be able to quell some people's fears that, oh, you know, someone might not know what they're doing. But at the end of the day, I also believe most people who are actually inclined to legally carry a pistol on their hip tend to know what they're doing. Um, And that's mostly from my own experience. I live in Northern Virginia where not a lot of people own firearms. And I know a handful of individuals who do and who live in who have since moved to other states and obtain their concealed carry permits none of them are the type of individuals that are just like oh i think guns are cool let me go carry this around um and now there certainly are going to be those people and like i said at the beginning of this podcast there are dangers associated with guns i think the benefits outweigh them there are dangers associated when there's an active shooter um event what we need to think about is not what is a perfect solution. We need to think what is the best trade-off. And it And is my opinion that it is a much better trade-off to allow law-abiding citizens to carry firearms with the risk that some of those individuals may not be incredibly well-trained with their firearm than to try to prevent law-abiding individuals from, from carrying concealed firearms and opening up you know, different gun-free zones and places where firearms are heavily restricted um, to active shooters without any pushback, um, because at the end of the day, you're going to have to wait for law enforcement to show up, or you're going to have to hope that they act correctly. And so is my opinion, the trade-off of allowing law-abiding citizens to carry concealed firearms outweighs the concerns with the small cohort that might not be as trained as we would like them to be.
1: Speaking of small cohorts, uh, Benjamin Haney and joining us. Uh, we live in the real world, so this is just a real world question. Social media is what it is. It amplifies everybody, good, bad, or indifferent. Is the small minority of folks online who go way over the top with their love of the Second Amendment and their love of guns, the, the amosexual mean, some people call it. Let's just be real here. They're not helping if you really like the Second Amendment and you're trying to argue for, you know, gun rights and there's a small minority out there that's probably not helping the cause here. What do you do about that? Because there is perceptions. Here's the problem. Both sides are going to grab the other side's extremes is the argument against the other side. Right. I don't think you can solve that problem because people still have freedom of speech, but is there a responsibility for gun owners to kind of police their own a little bit and 2 a advocates to also reel in their own extremism, not just pointing at the other side's extremism.
0: I think that being a jerk online and throwing your interest or your passion in other people's faces in a way that is meant to rile others up is annoying, infuriating, disgusting. I mean, to put whatever, um adjective you want on it i think it is a bad thing for discourse i don't i think at the end of the day we have an issue in this country of mass shootings there's an issue of active shooters and there's an issue of gun violence and they're all wrapped in together and at the end of the day we all want people to be safer so yes i would agree that the small cohort online of individuals that are just looking to piss off people who are worried about gun violence by throwing, you know, their their guns and their ammo in people's faces and and not wanting to actually engage in any discussion. I do agree that it hurts discourse and it allows people who are ardent second amendment opponents to grab onto those people and use them as, you know, examples of People like me who support the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms. It's easy to then paint everyone with a broad brush. And now we're all trying to argue, you know, who's extreme, who has what view, instead of just sitting at the table and and having a discussion. Because of that cohort, a lot of times my first order of business when having a discussion with someone is to prove to them that I'm not that guy. And now we just wasted 10 minutes where we could have been talking solutions on me trying to get them to understand that I'm not the person on social media throwing this stuff in your face. And so it is absolutely a detriment to discourse.
1: Yeah. And I think the other, the reversal on this is true too, that in my discourse with folks, as we try to work through this issue, I think there's a real disconnect with folks that want to say people should not have weapons for self-defense purposes. And you can argue all the rest of it, but really the second amendment, it's self-defense. Do you have a right to protect yourself, your property, and your family? Unless more and more, one of the overriding issues in all of our country is government accountability. That goes to law enforcement. We're seeing it in schools. We're seeing it, in whatever. When the government is not accountable for your safety, and we're seeing it more and more with law enforcement, we saw it in you vaulted. You brought it up earlier. I think there's a real disconnect for them to go all the way to, well, nobody ever needs a gun because the government's going to protect you. That's just so insultingly condescending, not true to people's bare eyes and common lived experience. That's just as harmful, too. Do you disagree?
0: No, I think it's incredibly harmful for two reasons. You know, you point out that we're seeing the government failing to protect us in so many ways today. Um, and I think that. Yes, people would have to shut off their eyes from what's happening on the news and in different areas of the country to believe that the government will simply protect us. But what it also does is it completely disregards all of human history where most extreme tragedies have actually occurred at the hands of the state. I mean, I pointed to a few um, earlier in our discussion You know, there was a gun registry in Germany created in the early 1930s. And when the Nazis took power, they used that registry to disarm political opponents. And then later in the 1930s, they used that registry to disarm German Jews. You know, they they ordered Jews to hand in their weapons. If they didn't comply, it was pretty easy to know that they weren't complying because they had a gun registry. Um, I'm an Armenian. And so my ancestors were, you know, tragically... Many of them were killed in the Armenian genocide. Um, individuals in Armenia were disarmed systematically um, before the carrying out of the Armenian genocide. Slaves in the United States couldn't legally own firearms. There were then black codes which tried to bar black individuals on the basis that they weren't citizens. And then, um, after you know, black people were considered citizens in the United States, then there were. Facially neutral laws, which basically raise taxes on guns and ammunition to try and prevent Black Americans and also poor people from owning firearms. Um, Many civil rights activists actually encouraged Black individuals to obtain firearms to protect their families from lynch mobs. Um, And then, once lynch mobs were thwarted, certain states tried to make gun laws stricter so that Black individuals could not protect themselves. And so, not only to, to for people to make the argument that you don't need a gun because the government will protect you, it's not only crazy because they're failing to protect us in so many ways today, it's crazy as well because we see a long history of humanitarian atrocities carried out by the hands of the state. Um, and I think that that's what baffles me the most out of the camp that, you know, you don't need guns. I think that that camp, I'm most baffled by the rejection or um, lack of acknowledgement of the history of the human population. Um, And so that cohort and the cohort on the right who wants to throw their guns in everyone's faces, I think both are really harming discourse in this country.
2: There's
1: a lot more we could get into there, but we've got to leave it there. Uh, This topic is not going away. We're going to continue to talk about it, and it all goes back to basic rights. What are they, and where does your rights start and somebody else's start, and where's the state's implementation thereof? Good in-depth stuff. Benjamin Ianian. great having you back, buddy. Good job today tough topic. We probably ticked off a little bit of everybody, but that means you're having a good discourse. Let folks know until we get you back on again, how they can follow you. We're going to link to his piece that we were working off here. We're also linking to his social media, but tell folks where they can find you and follow you until we get you on Hertel again.
0: Yeah, you guys can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Iyanian, and then you can also find me on Instagram at biyanian 13 Just search my name and you'll find me on either. I post all my writings podcast appearances, et cetera, on there. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on again, Andrew. It was really nice talking to you. Yep, we'll have
1: you back soon, my friend. Uh, be well, and we'll talk again soon, sir. Folks, if you've listened to the Heard Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast district of conservation it's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from dc and beyond from topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices listen to district of conservation on apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. The Herd Tell podcast is back. We had uh, last week we deep dove into CPAC Dallas with our friend uh, Chris Selleck, who was actually there this week. We're doing some a little different, a little history, a little philosophy, a little politics, a little pop culture, Machiavelli. And no, I'm not just talking about my favorite Tupac album. The guy, the myth, the legend. How did this guy that wrote something almost 500 years ago still captivate folks? Why did he influence the Founding Fathers? Why is he all over pop culture even to this very day? We talked to our friend Amanda Griffiths, who studied this extensively. We do a deep dive into it. Fascinating stuff. Lots of history, lots of culture, all kinds of stuff. And in this clip, we talk a little bit how even the Founding Fathers of America were influenced by Machiavelli. The real God, not just the myths and the legends, although those influenced as well. Check out this sneak peek of the upcoming Hertel podcast coming out this weekend right now. Um, let's get to the nitty gritty there of how we as Americans in the year of our Lord 2022 are still talking about Machiavelli and you've even got merchandise with Machiavelli on it. We already talked about how this got into the English speaking realm and in the English speaking academic tradition through France to England. Well, when you look at our founding fathers, what was their influences? France and England. Mm -hmm. So naturally they knew about this. You look into history. It's really interesting. Um, Franklin, Madison, Jefferson, they all have writings mentioning Machiavelli. We have kind of a strong stream here. They're, one of the balls of thread on this thing, you pull the yarn enough, American founding fathers, they like them some Machiavelli, both the theories of it and the mythology of it, but some of them actually read his work and treated it seriously too, didn't they?
2: They did. And this is something about which I'm sure, I'm sure you've, you've done quite a bit of reading. Um even people like Addison and Hume, who are probably more frequently invoked in some of the Founding Fathers' writings, they're reading Machiavelli, uh, they're drawing from him. Uh, George Washington, in fact, was was a very strategic and kind of cagey thinker and modeled some of his strategies after um, <clears throat> after some of the mythology around, uh, was it, Cincinnati? So, uh, and, and obviously, Livy talks about him, Machiavelli, Uh, admires a lot of the strategies that Cincinnati uses to become this mythologized figure. So yeah, um, there's quite a bit of of Machiavelli that leaks into our own institutions. And I do say institutions, right? Uh, And the constitution that we have today, the mixed government that we have, it's not only Machiavelli who gives us this, obviously a fellow named Polybius comes up with these mixed mixed regimes. But in the uh, first book of the Discourses in the early chapters, Machiavelli lays out a lot, you know, what looks sort of like an early bicameral type of system. And it's a little bit of a riffing on what the Romans had. Machiavelli gives us ideas for institutions, not just in the Discourses, by the way, but in some of the shorter writings as well. And in some of the briefer writings, um where he talks about having divided government um and where he talks about having various he doesn't use this term specifically but what we today would call checks and balances uh and yes it certainly has had an influence on our founding fathers today i would say and this is something that i would like to go into more in my own research um there's you can even derive some early market theory from a lot of what Machiavelli has to say about the, uh, you know, the pursuit of merit and the war- reward of excellence and uh, the, the freedom or the leaving it to a republic's citizens to make experiment of their virtue and the power of fortune in private as well as public. I think that is such a great encapsulation of what liberty should look like. Um, and we get that from Machiavelli. Um, that's what Machiavelli tells us should should happen in a republic. Um, experiments of virtue and experiments of fortune. And so, yeah, you, you get a lot of this really good stuff from him and it, it redounds into the present.
1: One of the real interesting ones, um, one of the important parts that defined our government, of course, and long before they made a musical about him was what Hamilton was doing with the Federalist Party. Um, there was a concern about a ra- a rising aristocracy. That was a big deal to folks. Um, and that's where some of the stuff, his views on Republicanism, his views on citizen soldiers, which really, you know, that's how the founding fathers saw themselves. So that, that fit like a glove when they read stuff like that. And not that he was the first one to put it, it's just, he's the popular work. So it makes sense. Um, you talk about Washington and Cincinnati. To his credit, Washington is probably the closest thing to Cincinnati we have in American history because he took over the army. He could have been king. And no, I'm going back to my farm, which, you know, full disclosure, he was the richest man in America by a lot. So that wasn't exactly, you know, he wasn't taking a vow of poverty or anything, but still he laid down power and went back to his farm. Those those threads all go together to make this great, big, hot American mess that we love so much but it was John Adams is the one that's really got into Machiavelli. He wrote extensively about Machiavelli and he, he wrote so much about it. He actually wrote about what other people wrote about it. So he wrote about what Sidney and Montesquieu and these other guys were writing about Machiavelli. So he was really getting into it. And that's where you start really seeing, um, not so much the political f- philosophy, but the core philosophy of Machiavelli, which is what the Catholic Church probably objected to, because the Catholic Church, I don't want to get too theological here, but you've got to you got to deal with this because it's important. The Catholic Church was, we are what redeems men. And Machiavelli's core principle and what John Adams lashed on was, no, human nature is undefeated and driven by passion, and it's always going to be bad unless you put guardrails on it. And when you cool. get through all the myth and all that, that's kind of the question that they're dealing with, isn't it?
2: Well, that's certainly Adams. Yeah. And I think Machiavelli doesn't really, he certainly talks about men and he, and, and, and what we today call human nature. Um, and I think what Machiavelli would say is that, you know, men, re- that and and maybe here here I'll go right back to Homer. <laughs> this is the sal- salvation's light is in our...
1: We cannot history. get away from the Greeks in this conversation. Right. No, we We're can't. trying to stay away from the Greeks. It's all Greek well, to me.
2: I mean yeah no ajax is my hellenic crush so i mean i stand but uh, so yeah salvation's light is in our is in our hands work and i think machiavelli would would agree with that as well you know machiavelli is perhaps yeah he's got a cynical he's absolutely got cynicism to him but there's also i think if you're gonna write what machiavelli writes and if you're going to want to be involved in politics at all, you do have to have some degree of some weird kind of optimism within that cynicism. Or that idealism, I should say, within that cynicism. And for Machiavelli, I don't think he sees men as inherently fallen because I don't, he doesn't understand anything as inherently good or bad. So in order to see someone as fallen, you would have to understand someone as Inherently bad, or as there being some kind of inherent thing like evil. For Machiavelli, it's very much what we do with what is given to us. And Adams, I think you're absolutely correct. Is is looking at this uh, for him through a more, you know, if, if you're if you're reading religion into it, Adams is looking at this through more of a no. People people need guardrails because people are wicked and fallen. Machiavelli does say that men are sadly wicked. But that is more of, of a commentary on the way that things are. It's not a commentary, I think, on, on essence so much. It's not a commentary on some fixed state. Machiavelli is all about how people are fluid and everything is always in flux. I think what Machiavelli wants to do is he wants to use that, that fact of things always being in flux, of nothing being inherently good or evil and say, let's work with what is, let's work with what's given to us by contingency, by this, you know, by this basket of externalities that we see as being external to us and use it toward our purpose. And then that in and of itself is a kind of redemption. And you see that in the way that Machiavelli talks about the necessity of tumults and people fighting with one another and there being political strife and struggle. It's in that collision of multiple forces and multiple intentions and and multiple desires that actually produces great amazing things and keeps on creating and perpetuates the life of the Republic. It's, It's born and born again and renews itself through this collision and through this you know through i uh, through the you know the cacophony of all things so again that that's a little bit more metaphysical but i think you that's that plays into what we see today in our own systems in our own institutions of having parties duking it out of having people with different political views you know having discourse of having Uh, of having open speech and things like that. So we get some of these ideas, maybe not directly from Machiavelli, but you certainly find them supported in what Machiavelli says.
1: Let's finish this off on a good note, both today and the week. Lorraine, Ohio. This is WKYC. On a snow summer day, you can find 11-year-old Giovanni Cordona on the front porch of his neighbor, Kim Dembeck's house. He and other neighborhood kids stop there frequently for ice cream. The visits feel a little different to Giovanni, though. His bond with Miss Kim runs deep. Him and my husband were best buddies. We lost him, meaning the husband, a couple years ago, Kim told us. My husband was a WMPT and was in a wheelchair, so daily Giovanni would watch him, uh, help him open the garage door. He knew Sam was up, and it was time to go. Upon remembering, Giovanni quietly said to of Kim's husband, Sam, he was my best friend. Remember, he's 11 years old here. Having a great neighbor is a gift. Having one that is a family is a blessing. You know that whatever you need, they'll be there. Last month Giovanni stopped at Ms Kim's house for a treat when he got to her house and heard her dog Shadow barking he knew something wasn't right peering into her house he was alarmed she was unconscious Giovanni said he quickly ran a few doors down to get his mom said well she's not answering me i'm smacking her yelling she's not answering me and wasting no time Giovanni called 911 Please hurry, hurry, he told the 911 operator. Please fire ambulance, 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 Giovanni said. Unbeknownst to Giovanni and his mom, Kim had inadvertently taken a dangerous cocktail of meds. Her regular medication for back problems and treatment for bronchitis had gotten mixed up. She had passed down and was in medical distress. Jacqueline thought she might lose her. I for sure thought that if he didn't hurry and if they didn't hurry and like, I don't know how much time she had left, Jacqueline said. With Giovanni's instincts, Miss Kim may not be here. They told me that little boy saved your life. It's hard for Giovanni to relive that day or talk about it, and that's okay because when Miss Kim needed him, he was there. So proud. He makes me so proud every day, Giovanni said. He knows I love him very much. He's always been my hero, Kim said to Giovanni. There's an important lesson here. Love your neighbors. It just may save your life. Great story to end the day on, great story to end the week on. We'd love to hear from you. HerdTelShow at gmail.com, HerdTelShow on the Twitter. Make sure you check out the HerdTel podcast this weekend, the Deep Dive on Machiavelli with Amanda Griffins that we teased a minute ago. Really good stuff. Uh, anxious to get that one out to you, and that'll do it for HerdTel for today. So wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well-fed. Have a great weekend Make sure you're checking out, subscribing, and sharing the show for folks. And we'll see you right back here Monday for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from Monstercat.com.